Good morning, everyone. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church, and I'm really glad to see you here this morning as we kick off um, something that we haven't done literally in years, which is instead of working through um, small parts of Scripture over a long period of time, we're going to look at a large chunk of Scripture over a relatively small amount of time. We kick off looking at an overview of the Old Testament today that'll take us up to Advent and December, but we're going to work almost all the way through, skipping as we go along over large portions and settling in on specific stories as we move forward. But before that, I want to tell you a story because it's a story that about an incident that probably saved my marriage and probably at the same time saved my faith. At the time, I was a uptight, overworked, and ill-equipped young missionary father and husband. It was an intense season where I felt the crushing weight of all the various responsibilities heavy on my shoulders. And at this particular time, I really couldn't see a way out. I was losing hope. And in a moment of almost raging despair, I unloaded all this on my wife, Jane, expecting her to confirm my bleak and desperate assessment and commiserate with me in my gloomy outlook. Her response, however, was the last thing that I anticipated. Instead of crawling with me into this deep cave of despair, she yanked me into the blinding light of the truth with these words, I have my happy ending. Her words were precise. Her countenance was firm. She refused to endorse my dark mental machinations, but instead powerfully gave witness to a very different reality, one that I desperately needed to experience at that exact time. In a weird way, she called me back to Genesis 1, the Genesis 1 narrative, to seeing what was good and pure and true and whole. Now, she wasn't saying that our marriage or our situation was some kind of Garden of Eden, but that it was good. It was a gift. It was something of value worth believing in, enjoying, holding as precious, and not giving up on. And I think at times we all need this. Genesis 1 today offers us just such an opportunity. It's so easy to lose hope. It's so easy to paint it all black. Genesis 1 reminds us that what God has created us and everything we know was created as good, precious, and beautiful. Pray with me as we begin to look into this text this morning. Creator God, God of the universe, we quiet ourselves to hear your words today. Let them seep into us 
work through every image, every memory, every hope, every assessment. Let your words flow in us and from us. We pray today in Jesus' name. Okay, y'all, Genesis 1. This is the deepest of histories. This is a story that has been told since humans could first communicate. Today on September 4, 2016, right here, we are reciting, rehearsing, remembering, recalling a story that has been told throughout the ages. This is deep history. Yet at the same time, it is amazingly current and ultimately frames our future. Because our origin story in no small way defines how we assess our current situation and what we aim for beyond today. All of us have a creative, a creation narrative or an origin story. All of us have one. Most of us don't recognize it as such. We just accept it as kind of the way we are, the way things are, the way we're brought up, where we come from, things like that. But all of us have a creation narrative. All of us have an origin story. The one we look at today was first given orally, spoken around campfires, in the homes, in the places of worship, on the road. It was recited and remembered, recalled, and passed down for generations until finally it was written and then rewritten and refined by the Spirit and the community until it was so divinely reflective of reality that that written record was canonized or set for future generations. But it was alive before it was written, and it is alive yet still. This creation story also does this. It foreshadows Everything that is to come in the Bible. If we don't understand Genesis 1, we miss so much of everything that follows, everything else that is recorded. If we miss Genesis 1, when we come to Psalm 19, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. We don't understand it. We don't get the full impact, the full weight of it. If we don't understand Genesis 1, we don't understand John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing that was made, was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Genesis 1 also prefigures the temple 
God creating a space and then inserting an image of himself into that temple. It prefigures, in fact, the entire Pentateuch. Specifically, the book of Leviticus is written along Genesis lines. All this is to say that Genesis 1 is not some rote preface that is tangential to the real story that follows, but is instead the overture that frames everything that is to come. And if we ignore or misunderstand this, we misunderstand everything that follows. So the first question we ask, the first question of all solid exegesis that we look at, what is Genesis telling us about God? And we need to look at Genesis in the same way that I think an art critic looks at a painting or a sculpture. We have here in our community one of the most profound gifts that a community can receive in the, in the Crystal Bridges Art Museum. And as you walk through, you'll probably experience something like this. You'll probably pass so many works of art in one place that for most of them, it'll either be, well, I like that or I don't like that. You know, that captivates me or that doesn't interest me. And you move. And then you find one that you like and you stand before it and you, and you quiet yourself. And then you start to ask the question, well, why do I like this? What is it about this piece of art that speaks to me? And that's the second level that we encounter when we stand before art. And then if we're willing and if we're quiet enough and if we're patient enough, we can start to ask the question, well, what does it mean? Not just, okay, I like it, it's attractive, and I like it because of these elements, but what, is it, what does it mean? And then at the deepest level of our criticism, at the deepest level, of engaging with, dialoguing with, being present to art. We ask the question, who did this? Who was the person who created this? What do I know from this work about the artist? We live in such a piece of art. This creation, these bodies, the air that we breathe is just such a piece of art. And yet rarely do we get beyond feels good, feels bad. Like it, don't like it. Sometimes we stop and say, oh, I like this. And this is why I like this. Maybe occasionally we'll stop and ask, what does it mean? What does all this mean? Why am I here? Why do I experience it this way? But what we are being called to by this creation is to ask, who is it that created it? Who is this person who set all this in motion? Genesis does that. Genesis helps us to do that. Genesis is a creative, 
a creation narrative. And we can't force it to be something it's not. It's not a science book as modern Western Americans think of science. It doesn't answer those questions. It doesn't come from the same premise. And it's not a history book as modern American rationalistic minds think of history. It's not that. It's a creation narrative. And to reduce it to either one of those, like a, a textbook or a, or a Western history, is to, is to take the power from it. It's to take the, the essence of it. It's to desiccate it and make it something dry and brittle. It's to suck the life out of it. It's to make it less, less real, less authentic than what it really is. And so as a creation narrative, once we understand, okay, what it is designed to do, why it is there, then we can ask the question, well, what makes Genesis, what makes this creation narrative so special? What is it about our affirmation as Christians that this is true? That this is the way things happened. That this is an accurate, reliable, viable explanation of creation. What makes it so different? I really want to encourage you this week. Go into the teaching notes. We've listed two different creation stories in there from different points of view. One is from ancient Babylon. One is from uh, Norse, Norse mythology. And they're representative of what you will find if you look all across the board from Aztec to wherever else. So what you'll find is that there's some very common ele elements with the biblical creation story. There's, there's elements there that, that resonate, that sound like, oh yeah, that sounds like something from the Bible with this. And then you'll find a profound profound difference in the way Christians interpret creation. And I won't go into all of them here, but as you look, think about this. Our creation story, there is no conflict. There is no warring gods or warring forces that tear and rip and rape and thus things are created. As a matter of fact, there is no one to be in conflict with. There is only God. God's self represented in what we come to be known as the Trinity. There is harmony. That the purpose of creation is an expression of that creative love. It's not, it's not creating something in order to gain something else. It's just what God does. Because God is creative. There's no, there's no transactional end to creation. There's no creating something for us so that we will in turn do something back. It's just there. It's all gift. It's all yes. It's all good. It's all with. And then you'll see at the end of this creation narrative, this idea of rest, Shabbat, that comes at the very end. 
This is not the rest that comes from exhaustion. This is not the rest that comes from running out. This is not the rest that comes from, well, I've done all I can do, so now I just need to rest. This is a rest that comes from completion. The rest that we see in Genesis 1 is a rest that says, that's it. That is all and everything that I intended. That is everything and everyone as it should be. This is a rest of perfection. This is a rest when you get the soup just right. It doesn't need another ingredient. This is a rest when the task is completed. Nothing is left to do. And then in this rest also there is not withdrawal. But as we will go on and read, we'll see that then there is incarnation or entrance into. God doesn't create the world spinning, spins it, flies off to some other galaxy. Instead, God creates and then inhabits, goes down into. He himself, God himself, enjoys everything that has been done. Ultimately, as we listen to what the book says, not what we expect it to say or demand that it says, we hear something universally cataclysmic that the God of all creation, the ultimate creative word, is saying yes and good, and I am with you. Now, it's hard to hear with fresh ears, so we're going to try something different. I'm going to ask Jane to come up. And obviously, I listened to her when she spoke those words in the story that I was telling you earlier. Uh, yesterday, we celebrated 26 years of being married, and that is... Believe me, that is much more to her credit than it is to mine. Everybody do this. Everybody take your hands. Stick them out in front of you. Stick them out in front of you like this. Now, clench them. Clench them tight. I mean, put those nails, pop those forceps up, right? Take a deep breath. And then as you let that breath out, just slowly unfold that hand. Unfold it. Unfold it. Now, listen to the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep, but the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. In the beginning, God. This is who we come from. This is who sustains us. This is to whom we are going. The greatest of forgettings is to forget this. The greatest of denyings is to deny this. God is our source, the sustaining presence, the ultimate end. 
God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, so God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning, making the first day. From the start, there has been the creative word that speaks and things come into existence. Good things. From the start, there is rhythm. It is not static. Dawns break and evenings fall. All is in motion. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. It was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening and there was morning, a second day. From the jumbled mass of matter, everything is being refined, being separated and blessed, taught to stand. This is our growing up. As we learn of ourselves as individuals, as unique, only then can we fully understand our connectedness. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. It was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, let the land produce vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit and seed in it according to their kinds. It was so. The land produced vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. This creative word is so powerful so all-defining, it replicates itself in the smallest of our being, in seeds and cells and DNA. We are continually called forth to replicate, to multiply, to grow. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be signs to indicate seasons and days and years, and let them serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. It was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. He made the stars also. God placed the lights in the expanse of the sky to shine on the earth, to preside over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good, there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Not only in the smallest things, but in the largest of things as well. Stars and galaxies give witness, act according to the creative word, grow and move in accordance to the nature of our creator. God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. God created the great sea creatures and every living and moving thing with which the water swarmed according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. The motion into which the Creator sets things only increases in intensity with multiplying bios. And while all of it has its place, the sky, the water, the ground, none of it is in isolation. 
We're all and always sharing space, sharing sustenance, rubbing shoulders with each other. Independently and each vitally necessary, interdependent to the success of each other. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, cattle, creeping things, and wild animals, each according to its kind. It was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the cattle according to their kinds, and all the creatures that creep along the ground according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. Good and at times just flat out crazy. The diversity the beauty, the strangeness. What magnificent mysteries have been created. What endless, staggering creative power do we see. As individuals, we barely begin to see or experience all of what God has created. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. And then there is us. Unique. Not on top, per se, but close. Like all other living, created things, we are to be fruitful and multiply. But also, we are given the task to rule. In this, we find a deeper reflection of the Imago Dei, the image of God. We are given, created, not just to represent God in our bios, but also in our ethos, our calling, our actions. We alone are given this task. It is not to dominate, but to steward, not to use up, but to cultivate, not to consume for our own ends, but to act as regents for the one true God. Then God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the entire earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the animals of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. It was so. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Each of us is given for the other. Nothing is created with the end goal or purpose to rank or enslave to war against or selfishly isolate. Each and every thing, each and every one, exists for the other. All of it and all of us are gifts to each other. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he had been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. 
when we live into this design, into this purpose, into this order, we live holy lives. We become both fully, uniquely us, and fully connected and built together into something none of us can be on our own. This rest, this Sabbath, is not static, but an equilibrium, a dynamic perfection of everything acting in accordance with its design. And I can tell you, Grace Church, this is going to be tested. This goodness, this vision of created order is going to be tested. We're going to see very quickly how things fall into disorder. But if we are to understand what that truly means, we need to sit with this today, this week. We need to let the beauty and the perfection and the purpose of Genesis 1 transform our imaginations and our consciousness. We need to remember this deep history from which we are all heirs. In the beginning, God. Right now, God. In the future, God. Forever, God. I ask the worship team to come up. And as we begin to reflect on this more and pray, the first act of remembering is to come to the table. Created elemental given to us as the ultimate gift, the redeeming gift, the reconciling gift, the recalling gift, the regathering gift, this table representing the sacrifice of Jesus. And this table is open to everyone. It's open to everyone who is seeking that restoration through the power and sacrifice of Jesus. to the community around us, people in need. We'll pray and reflect. If there's something in your heart, something in your life, you need to be reconciled to someone else or to God. Now is the time to do that. And then we give that all back in worship. Thank you for being here this morning.